Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Well, I am excited that you made it today. I think we got a great church. Um, you excited to be here this morning? Come on, about eight of you. That's all right. I'm excited to preach. Um, how about those Broncos? Come on. I went to bed, I recorded the game, but I knew. How many believers do we have here? You knew they were going to come back. And uh, how many, admit it, how many prayed for the Broncos last night? Okay, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, do we have any Idaho Vandal fans? Any, any Vandal fans? Okay, good. I didn't want to have to cast the devil out this morning. I'm kidding. Um, go to turn to your neighbor. You guys know the drill. Give them a high five. Tell them how much you love them. Tell them they look good. Turn to your second choice. And, uh, man, I don't know. Just give him a high five. Punch him in the, in the shoulder or something. Well, we, uh, we've been in our sermon series. Hopefully you've enjoyed it the last five weeks. Uh, out of the book of Philippians, we're talking about learning to be on mission. Everyone say, be on mission. And about five weeks ago, we talked about what a Jesus for the people church looks like. And then four weeks, we talked about, or four weeks ago, we talked about the relationship between Jesus and joy. How many of you want more joy in your life? So we talked about Jesus and the relationship with Jesus and joy. And then about three weeks ago, or two, two, two weeks ago, we talked about how God uh, has a mission for the church. The church doesn't have a mission statement. Uh, that we're here today because we're on mission. Can I get an amen? And then last week, we talked about the complicated relationship between suffering and grief and how we can rejoice even in the middle of our suffering because God works out some things. No, all things for our good. So today we're going to be talking about, if you're taking notes, courage. We're talking about the relationship between courage. How many of you want more courage in your life? Uh, all the Dallas Cowboys fans said amen, right? Admit that you're a Cowboys fan. That takes a lot of courage here in Boise, Idaho. Uh, but courage and the relationship between courage and we're going to be talking a little bit about death, but we're going to be ultimately talking about the Christian hope. And so we're going to begin in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 18. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we have uh, the text up behind me. So this is verse 18. Uh, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, could you say, I rejoice. Love that. In that I rejoice because Jesus is being proclaimed. Yes, he says rejoice again. Uh, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers, how many of you believe in prayer? Through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's quoting Job 13. This will turn out for my vindication. Verse 20, he continues, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage. Everyone say courage. But that with full courage. Everyone say courage. Say it one more time. Courage. With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by, could you just say that, death. But so, so Paul has a lot of gravitas 
He's serious about life. Would you agree with that? There's a seriousness. There's an earnestness to to Paul's language here. And then he continues in verse 21, which is kind of like a coffee cup, um, like scripture. It's really memorable. Christians will quote this all the time. He goes, "For, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul is doing is he's remapping uh, this Greek cliche, uh, which basically is translated the good life by saying to live is Christ. What Paul is suggesting is that every good in this world is subordinate in relationship to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about heaven rushing forward into the present. It's all about new creation, God's glory flooding the entire cosmos, and our bodies being transformed. That's the heart of the gospel. And then he says something um, for, for many Americans, a little bit, a little bit radical. He goes, and to die is gain. And then he continues in verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. Depart is like a nautical picture of a ship leaving port. And it's my desire to be with Christ, for that is far better. And then verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And as he continues in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul loves the people. Uh, Following Jesus is all about loving people. People matter. Cats don't, but people matter. Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. Can I get an amen? All right, verse 26. And so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner, verse 27, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How many of you want your life to be worthy of the gospel? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, I love this, in one spirit. How do you get that? Firm in one spirit. And then he continues in this last clause, with one mind. So Paul has this vision of the church that they would stand firm in one spirit with one mind. How many of you know, and obviously what Paul is talking about is unity. How many of you know that unity is hard work? Right? I got a family. How many parents do we have here? Okay, so so you know this if you have kids that parenting is mostly death by negotiation, right? Kids, they just, if, if you have multiple kids, they just, I don't know, it's a, their natural proclivity to, like, fight. And it's like, if you're not careful, things can spiral out of control, and you can live in a dystopian nightmare called your kids fighting all the time. And we have good kids, and they love each other, but for whatever reason, uh, there's, there's conflict. And so we have five minds in my house, my family, and at times it's difficult to get us all on the same page, right? It's difficult to, I mean, how many of you find it hard after a Sunday morning service to figure out where you want to go to eat? Right, some, like sometimes, like some of you, 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 you don't want to admit it, but you actually got into a knockdown fight with your spouse over where you wanted to go eat, right? Knockdown, I mean figuratively. Can I get an amen? All right, anyways, that's... Um, so unity is a hard thing. So, Paul, how, how are we going to have the courage to stand firm in one spirit when we have Dallas Cowboy fans, Washington Redskins fans? We have people, we have vegans, we have meat people, we have people that like to go to McDonald's, people that co-op. We have people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different family pedigrees. We have different perspectives. Things can be really subjective. Man, if it's hard to, 
get on the same page in a family, how is a church going to stand firm in one spirit? How are we going to get the courage to do this? Well, Paul is going to give us the answer, and we'll, uh, I'll try to flesh it out here soon. But he says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, I love this, and not being frightened. How many of you want to live not being frightened anymore? Not being frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let me just say something really quick. I think the church, if I'm just looking at the church in the Western world, what we need more of is courageous living. We need people that um, are, are courageous about living on mission in a very dangerous world. We live in a polarized cultural climate, and we need Jesus to fill us with his courage. How does that happen? How do we get the courage to stand firm uh, together? How do, we, how do we gain, how do we muster up the courage to be on mission and to reflect the goodness of God in our world? I just read this last week, this social scientist he said that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 50s. People are under a lot of stress. People are dealing with chronic, a chronic sense of inadequacy. People deal with anxiety, with fears, um, phobias. Phobias are, are irrational fears that people have that have a, a physiological uh, consequence in their body, heart rate spikes, um, they actually live in untruth or unreality because of their phobias. So I just like, I went through some just common phobias out there. And it kind of gives you a picture of where a lot of people are at um, in, in our Western world. With all the modern medicine that we have and all the iPhones, we still struggle with fear. People have fear of darkness. It's a, it's a phobia. Um, some have uh, a fear of needles. I know some of you, you see a needle, you pass out because you just don't like blood. Blood, right? You don't like blood. Um, some people, this is a little eccentric, have fear of flowers. Anyone like that? Um, fear of untidiness. That's my wife. She just likes a clean home. Um, fear, she really doesn't, but she does. Let's move on. Okay, no one's laughing. My wife's giving me the, the cold, dead-eye stare. Fear of gravity. It's like people are afraid of gravity. Uh, people are afraid of ugliness. It's interesting. Snow. Come on, how many of you love snow? Love snow. Come on, some people fear snow. Uh, this makes sense, this next one. Uh, people have a fear of clowns. Can I get an amen? Stephen King, stop writing your nasty novels. We don't want the it. Get out of here, clown people, right? And if you're a clown person, Jesus loves you. I'm totally kidding. All right. Uh, this is another one, dentophobia. Come on, I think you can guess that. People are, are afraid of dentists, which I totally understand. Uh, people are afraid of the color white. Um, this, this makes total sense, this next one. People are afraid of teenagers. All those youths out there driving their cars. How many of you would be an, um, an advocate for raising the driving age limit to 25? Our brains don't fully develop until we're 25. I just offended like three-fourths or a fourth of you. Uh, but people have a, a, a fear of teenagers. Uh, this is a little interesting. People are afraid of knees, knees, knees. Um, some are uh, afraid of the figure eight. I claim this every day, so I don't have to do this next activity. People are afraid of cooking. And uh, some have a, a fear or a phobia of feet 
and ferns. It's interesting. A couple couple years ago, ferns. How many like ferns? What's a fern? Isn't it like a plant, like a green little? Yeah, ferns. People are afraid of those bushy little ferns. Anyways, I remember a couple years ago, I, I was just kind of looking at, at like people's like greatest fear. I thought it was interesting. Uh, and it changes every year. Uh, but this one year might have been 2009, whatever. Uh, sharks was the number one fear. Number two was public speaking. And then number three was death. I'm like, you guys are all ridiculous, right? Death should be the top one. But people, people are afraid. And uh, I think people, especially in the church, they, they want to have courage. So how do we enter into God's courage? How did Paul muster up his strength uh, to live courageously in a world that wanted to shut him down? And we'll talk about that in about a minute or two. If you could bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you that you're with us today. And I just ask that you would help us to uh, open up our hearts to you. And Lord, I thank you there are a lot of people here today that might be struggling with fear, with insecurity, with inadequacy. Some people trying to find themselves. Some people maybe wrestling with indecision because they're afraid that they're going to make the wrong decision. Lord, there are those in this room that are maybe that for some time have struggled with panic attacks and um, emotions that, that get out of control or spiral out of control um, that lead into fear and maybe even phobias or maybe even disorders. Lord, I just thank you for your healing power to come today and bless everyone in this room in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, how many of you love uh, the holiday season? Like, what do, you, what do you like better? Do you like Thanksgiving or do you like Christmas better? Okay, if you like Christmas, raise your hand. Okay, better. Uh, if you like Thanksgiving, raise your hand. All right, I'm with all the Thanksgiving people. I love Thanksgiving. I love stretchy pants, right? We always talk about you get your stretchy pants out, right? You can eat. Uh, my wife just shouted at me, Thanksgiving is like a second Father's Day. You're right. All the women folk, they go back in the kitchen, right? I'm kidding. Come on. Take a joke. What? Oh, we're live. Oh, okay. Woo, okay. Anyways, let's move on. I don't know how to. Sorry. <laughs> we love women at this church. <laughs> um, but I love Thanksgiving. I mean, come on, you love turkey, right? You love, man, I love dressing. I love taking naps. Isn't that, if you're a dad, Thanksgiving should be your favorite thing because you just get to take a nap, you eat turkey, and then you watch the Dallas Cowboys, right? Is there anything better than that? So um, this last week, I was kind of getting in the holiday mood, thinking about Thanksgiving, kind of anticipating it. So uh, what we kind of like to do, we like to play board games, I and mean, we don't do it a lot. Actually, I like to play board games, and no one in my family does that or puzzles. So I just wanted to, like, um, maybe get the, the family together and go get a puzzle. So I took our kids to Rite Aid. I love Rite Aid. And uh, we got, like, a little, my first mistake is we got this little puzzle, it was about 100 pieces, but it was a hologram. Like, like it just, it was a very demonic puzzle. Because it doesn't make sense to me. It's like, a holo, is it a hologram or is it holographic? I don't know the difference between, is it, it's a holographic. It's like a 3D image thing, and so you put it, it just changes image, because you, and you can't figure out how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. So we actually, lost, we, we came home, and we kind of spread the puzzle out. We lost the, the box where we could see, like, the end view. 
And so Quincy and I, I mean, Quincy, he was such a champ. How many love Q? I mean, if you know Q, you just love him. He's such a champ. So he was trying to help me put this puzzle together. After about 10 minutes, he looked at me and he goes, Dad, you just made a really bad decision. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, son. You're grounded. Get in your room and play your harmonica right now because you're in trouble. No. Um, but, it, we, we, you know, it took us about maybe 30, 35 minutes to figure out this puzzle. My wife saved us. She came to rescue us. But we couldn't figure out the puzzle until we found the box with the picture, right? Um, the key to, in, in, in my small little mind, the key to putting puzzles together is you have to see the, the end view. You got to see what you're putting together in order to put the puzzle together. And I think this is what Paul is saying when we go to verse 21. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, that, that's like our map. Uh, that's like our, our end view. Like if, if we can understand um, something about death, die is gain. We can understand our relationship to death. If we can think straight about the Christian hope, about the end view, about where we're going, then we can think straight about how we can raise our kids, how we can handle circumstances and storms, how we can live in the good times. How many like the good times? How we can live in the good times and the bad times. If we can think straight about resurrection, death, heaven, the Christian hope, new heavens, new earth, that's that's how we can think straight about everything else. I think the reason why people get confused about life is because they're confused about where we're going as Christians. So we kind of lose sense of the end view. We, we, lose, we lose sense of like this forward look that every Christian should have. And so Paul gives us this statement to live as Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain is like shorthand for the entire Christian hope. And I want to get to that statement. I want to talk to you about the Christian hope today and how it's connected to courage. If you want courage, you have to properly grasp the, the large-scale Christian hope. If you want courage, if you, if you want to engage uh, God's mission and be who God's called you to be, you need to know where you're going. Before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about death. It's something we don't like to talk about. Can I get an amen? We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. Um, I remember the first time I experienced death, I was about 12 or 13. And uh, my grand, great-grandpa, Tracy, um, passed away. And uh, he, was, he was a big guy, broad shoulder, farmer. Was he a rancher, too? He was a rancher, farmer. And uh, I loved, what's that? He was a cowboy. He was, there we have it. There we have it. Thank you, God, for that revelation. See you, folks. <laughs> Dallas Cowboy, Cowboy. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. <laughs> and we like to have fun. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember I would go over to his house, and he would give candy to us and the kids. And I remember just, just really loving and respecting my grandfather. And I remember one day, it was actually a day or two before my birthday, I believe, and hearing my, my dad um, over the phone um, talking to, I think, Grandma Doris, and that's when we found out that great-grandpa Tracy passed away, and that was my first encounter with death. I remember going to the funeral being, and, and this is just me, and I know we've all had this kind of shared experience. Again, as Americans, we don't like to talk about death. Um, we have technology that kind of distracts us from grief and from suffering and from dealing with a lot of different complicated emotions that we should be able to 
deal with, but we can't. So technology kind of like distracts us. But in that day, we had no technology. And so I remember going to the funeral. And I mean, we had TVs. I'm not that old, okay? We had TVs and we had radios, but we didn't have anything else. Okay, anyways. Um, But I remember going to the funeral and thinking about mortality. And I remember being shocked by it. For the first time in my life, thinking about the possibility of death and realizing that everyone that I know and I love will one day pass away. And, and thinking through death, in an in, and for me at, that, at 13, it still is. It's incomprehensible. Like I couldn't, I couldn't fathom mortality. And I remember about a year or two later after my great-grandfather um, Tracy passed away, I had a really good friend of mine, his name was Chris, uh, was in a car accident and he was killed. And I remember going to his funeral, sitting in the back, being like 13, 14 years old and trying to process all these emotions related to death. And um, this, and maybe you've experienced this, but this is unique to me. I remember thinking about my friend and uh, he was only 14 and uh, tragically losing his life and just, again, trying to process suffering and death. And uh, I remember having these feelings of disgust kind of come out. I remember sitting in the back and tears welling up in my eyes, feeling disgusted as I thought about death, like it was a dirty diaper, that there was something wrong with death, that it was like an enemy. I remember thinking that, and I think this is how, not I think, this is how the New Testament, this is how Jesus and Paul and the early Christians thought about death itself. Death is not a friend. Death is not something you embrace. Like, like on the street, like pop culture, uh, you have like songs that talk about embracing death like it's a friend. Uh, there, there are varieties of belief that try to re-describe death. One is like soul migration. This is like a low-grade pantheism way of thinking about a post-mortem existence. So after death, like you merge into the soupy consciousness, universal consciousness, or you turn into like Rihanna's diamonds. Hello, amen, right? So a lot of people think that way, that it's just like, it's, it's shining like a glow stick for the rest of eternity in some sort of universal, soupy way. That's soul migration. Christians don't believe that. Um, if from, from a strictly materialist viewpoint, uh, people assume that after death, uh, there's annihilation. You no longer exist. And then you have those who kind of embrace this semi-platonic idea that after death, you fly off from planet Earth to a fluffy place called heaven, and you play harps and flutes and harmonicas, which is by definition uh, my understanding of hell. Can I get an amen? No harps, no harps, no harps, right? So we have all these varieties of belief that try to re-describe. Everyone say re-describe. Or redefine death as like, it's okay, we're all going to die, there's nothing really wrong with it, we'll merge into the con- you know, some universal consciousness, or we'll shine like a glow stick for the rest of eternity, or we'll be in like some fluffy disembodied place we call heaven, and it goes on and on and on on the street. Yet, what Paul tells us is that death, we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is not a friend, it's an enemy, And under the victory of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, death has been dethroned. God put death to death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we find this in verse 25. Also, God takes death, everyone say death, and subjects it 
under the rulership of King Jesus. We find at the end of this chapter, chapter 15, found in 1 Corinthians, um, which is all about resurrection, bodily resurrection, that through the victory of Jesus, we will not die or death will not have any sway over us. So what does that mean? Well, let me just say this really quick. Death is seen biblically as an intruder. It's, it's, it, death, in other words, has graffitied uh, the beauty of God's creation, or it's vandalized creation itself. I remember uh, living in Portland. I was about four or five years old. It was a summer night, and uh, I, I, it was just my mom and me, and I think Royce, who was living with us at the time, and I think my dad was coaching college basketball somewhere, so we were just at our house about 8 o'clock, uh, maybe 8.30, still kind of light out, and I remember our sisters, my sisters were there, and I remember hearing something in our, in our uh, backyard, and it was like, it was really, it was kind of confusing, heard this loud like bang, bang, and at the back of our house, we have this window, the, the, the shades were drawn, and so you could actually, you would hear this sound, and you would see the back wall like thumping, it was like a weird thing, so Royce, who lived with us, uh, went around um, to the back, kind of went on the side, went in the back, looked around, and there was a man with a bat trying to, like, break into our house. It was kind of a weird scenario. And I remember being, like, frightened out of my mind, and uh, I remember thinking, there's no way I want to go embrace this guy, right? We're not going to go give him a hug. He obviously has ill intent to come in and vandalize our house. And it was, it was, um, it was a catastrophic emotional experience for me. Thankfully, he didn't get in. My dad's six foot five. How many you love Pastor Ken? Love Pastor Ken. He came back and he handled, he handled his business, right? He was the, the man of the castle. And I don't know what he did, but the guy left. And, um, but it was just one of those weird experiences. But it gives us a picture of, of how we should view death. That's not a friend. It's, it, it comes to vandalize creation. And so when Paul says to die is gain, he's, number one, Paul's not suicidal. Paul, Paul's not like, in a, like experiencing a fit of melancholy one day. He's like starving his face off. And he's like, you know what, guys, I'm just like, I'm in the mood. I just want to die, right? Remember, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, roughly mid-50s. He's in prison. He's, he's experienced a ton of suffering, and he says to die is gain. He's not saying that uh, he is suicidal. He's not, he's not um, this is not a death wish, not something that he wants um, simply because he's like upside down in his emotions. To die is gain is a shorthand for the entire Christian hope. It's shorthand for God's future. So Paul is not saying I want to die because it's a friend. I want to die because I'm suicidal. Paul is saying to die is gain because of the hope behind that. So what's that hope? We find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And I just want to describe this to you really quick. This is chapter 5. We're going to read 10 verses if we get the scripture up really quick. Verse 1, Paul is talking about heaven, and he talks about resurrection, and he talks about um, life after life after death, and he begins in verse one, and he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house. Everyone say a house. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
Okay, I, I, this is a little bit cryptic, but can I just nerd out on you on some theology? You have no choice, right? So what Paul is saying is, okay, heaven is not just a place that you fly off to and you spend the rest of eternity in some sort of disembodied existence. What Paul is saying is that your future bodily self is stored up in heaven. In other words, heaven is like a storage facility. It's where you store things. Heaven is a place, what Paul is saying, is where our future bodily self resides. It's a place, it's God's space. Everyone say God's space. It's God's space, and it's where God resides. It is a place of peace. It is a place of rest. But primarily, it is a place where our future self is stored. This is the argument that you find in verse 1. Then we go to verse 2. Verse 2, Paul then says, For in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. What Paul is saying is that um, he's, not, he's not longing for a disembodied existence. He's longing for re-embodiment. To be found naked means to have a soul or spirit without a body. So for the, the, the entire Christian hope, hear me. You don't hear anything else. Please hear this. The entire Christian hope is organized around resurrection and re-embodiment. I don't want to be found naked. Paul's not worried about, like, you know, that dream where you, you know, in junior high, you go to your class and, you're like, you're, you're in your underwear, right? Paul's not worried about physical nakedness. What he's worried about is a soul, or at least he wants to talk about this, being a soul without a body and how that does not compute with the the entire large-scale Christian hope. And then in verse 4, he continues, For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, stripped of our body, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says kind of the same thing in a little bit different way. He says that the perishable will be taken up or swallowed up by the imperishable. What Paul is saying is not, his longing is not for this non-physical immortality. His longing is for a physical bodily immortality. And that what is mortal will be taken up by what is immortal, but it's a physical or trans-physical Uh, immortality. Paul is saying that he doesn't want to be unclothed. He doesn't want to be found naked, uh, which again is a soul apart from the body. He wants to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then he says in verse 5, he has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. God gives us the spirit not just to feel good, Right? God gives us the Spirit not just to have a nice Pentecostal like church service. God gives us the Spirit not just like the man, so we can prophesy. And those are important things. God gives us the Spirit as a down payment. It's a guarantee. It's almost like proof that heaven or God's future world is right around the corner. Like when you buy a house, how many of you want to buy a house one day, right? You got to put a down payment on, down. And when you put that down payment down, you secure that house. The Spirit is our guarantee of our future. And then he continues in verse 6. 
says, we are always of good courage. Everyone say courage. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by, by faith and not by sight. And then he continues in verse 7. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The New King James Version says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he continues, two more verses, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then finally in verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what Paul is saying is he wants to be clothed. And to be clothed means um, this physical re-embodiment. This is what Paul wants. Have you ever wondered why you, why you want to wear clothes? I mean, outside of modesty, right? Like, I'm glad you, you came today wearing clothes. Can I get any man to that? Um, we wear clothes, obviously, related to issues of modesty, related to issues of of um, shame and guilt, but I think there's something else about, like, when you put on makeup, or when, how many, how many shoppers do we have here? We got a few of you like to shop, okay? Um, I, I like to shop, but my wife has put me on a budget. Can you pray that God will speak to her to give me more money so I could shop? <laughs> but uh, I like to shop, I like to look for, for clothes, and yes, I know some people when they shop, they're just thinking about themselves, and maybe shopping is like a narcissistic thing, um, but you mutatis mutanus, when we respect all the, like, the different points of view, I think generally we want to be clothed rather than unclothed, right? When we shop, we're not just shopping for clothes, we're not just trying to look good, I think, I think we're anticipating a further clothing. I think in many ways, we know that there's something in our bones that's wrong with us, and that we know in our bones uh, that we're made for something more. And I think when we shop and we wear clothes, as Christians, we are anticipating the day through Jesus that we uh, are further clothed with physical embodiment. This is Paul's vision of the Christian hope. Paul, I'm trying to make this more clear. Paul's vision of the future is not centered around heaven. It's centered around bodily resurrection. It's not heaven. Early Christians did not say, okay, the gospel has come, the kingdom of Jesus is here, heaven has rushed forward into the present, so let's fly off this planet. Paul and the early Christians talked about bodily resurrection. Jesus is risen. Jesus bodily came back from the dead. And what is bodily resurrection? It is the reversal of death itself. If death has been defeated, new creation can be launched. And early Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went around preaching the good news that Jesus is the king. He's running creation itself. Death, which graffitied God's beautiful world, has been defeated through the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus. God's future world, where glory and healing 
is has now rushed forward into the present. And through repentance and through faith, you can be a part of this rescue the world project. So when Paul is saying, I want to be clothed, you know, he's not saying, I want, to, I want to go to a disembodied place. He's talking about his resurrected body. That in the end, when God makes the new heavens and new earth, he will give you your body back, a new body. He will transform your mortality. Mortality will be swallowed up with immortality. And it is bodily. Can I get an Amen. Many of us, when we think of redemption and when we think of salvation, we think of somehow God scrapping our bodies, God scrapping the material world for a non-material world. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. Redemption or salvation is not about the annihilation of our bodies or the annihilation of the raw materials or space and time and, and matter itself because in the kingdom of God, matter matters Salvation and redemption is about the liberation of something that's been enslaved. Death has enslaved our bodies. And it's through the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus that death is defeated. Corruption is defeated. Sins are defeated. Come on. Sickness is defeated. Decay, entropy is finally defeated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is, this vision of the future, is the source of Paul's courage. The reason why he's courageous is because of his vision of bodily resurrection. Resurrection, again, is not about scrapping the material world for a non-material world. Resurrection is about transforming space and time and matter and bodies, and bringing healing and glory. Can I get an amen for that? If, let me just say this really quick, logically, if, if our destiny is simply to fly off to some disembodied heaven, that means death has not been defeated. If that's our ultimate destiny, death has not been defeated. But Jesus has risen from the dead, which means death as an enemy, as a stalker, as a vandal, has been turned upside down, has lost its power, has been weakened. And you and I, if we are in Christ, now experience the life of the age to come. This is important that we understand. It's important that we get this, we grasp this. Well, Chris, um, what happens then when we die? If you're saying that the Christian hope is all about resurrection in the future, what happens when we pass away? Uh, do we, like, experience soul sleep? Or Christians have some interesting ways of viewing what happens to us when uh, we experience a post-mortem state. Well, Paul makes it very clear in uh, verse uh, 8 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We find in Luke chapter 23, Christians, let me just say this really quick, Christians never talked about flying off to heaven. Christians talk mostly about resurrection. 
But we do have an instance in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus is on the cross and there was a criminal right next to him. He repents, looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you remember me in your kingdom? Jesus looks to him. How many of you love Jesus? Looks to him and says, today. Everyone say today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not after 10,000 years of soul sleep, like taking a big long nap, and I love naps, but I don't like that kind of nap. Can I get an amen? But today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Persian word. And within the Jewish thinking, uh, this word heaven or, or paradise was a place of rest and peace, but it was an intermediate, uh, like a, a middle ground. It was an in-between stage. Within Jewish thinking, heaven or paradise was not the final stage. Resurrection was. And before the resurrection of the just, the just who passed away would go to be with King Jesus. It's heaven where our future selves are stored. And it's at the end of human history when God makes new heavens and new earth where we get our resurrected bodies back. Can I get an amen? So I used to, and I, I share this a lot, I used to think, like, I, I, don't, I don't like looking at pictures of, of myself, uh, especially like 10 or 15 years ago, because it's really depressing. And uh, I've shared this a, a lot. I just, I don't know what it is. I've been seeing a lot of pictures from, from my past. And it's just, it's amazing how you, you just see over time how you just, you get older. I'm, if, I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm getting a little bit more gray, right? Um, I'm getting some more wrinkles around my eyes. And uh, I have a tendency when I look at these pictures from when I was young to think of myself like as a, a shadow of my former self, right? Like I'm getting older and, you know, eventually when I'm 95, I'm not going to have any teeth. And it's just like and I, all those youths, youth is wasted on the young, right? I wish I could be 21 again or whatever. But as a Christian, if you really think like a Christian, to die is gain, Paul is saying. To die is gain means that right now, if you're in Christ, you're a shadow of your future self. Because one day, not only will God remake this material world through a fresh act of creation, God will remake your body. Can I get an amen to that? I love this. I love this. So resurrection is important for early Christians. Uh, N.T. Wright, he said this, it was people who believed in the resurrection, not people who believed in going away from the earth who stood up against Caesar. Resurrection means this world matters. Resurrection means matter matters. Resurrection means that bodies matter. Can I get an amen? That, that issues of justice matters. That the marginalized matters. That how we do politics, how we raise our kids, how we live our lives, it matters. If we're just destined to fly off this planet and spend eternity in a disembodied place, why do anything on planet Earth? Let's just scrap it. Let's just kind of do whatever we want to do. Play Call of Duty for 30 years, right? And let our brains become mush. Because, man, it doesn't matter. We're going to fly off to heaven one day. And yet that's not where the Christian vision takes us. 
The Christian vision of the future takes us in the opposite direction. This world matters because resurrection is all about the reversal of death itself. Death is an anti-creation, anti-God force that has been defeated by Jesus. So your kids matter. Can I get an amen? What we do in this world matters. And when you know that the last word over your life and over your body is God's last word, and we say this all the time, when God has the last word over your body and the last word that God has over you is a resurrected body, and when you know that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and you know that Jesus won the victory over death itself, no Caesar will intimidate you. No power will intimidate you. Come on, somebody. No addiction can intimidate you. Come on. Our source of courage is not in this escapist spirituality. We're going to sing kumbaya, and then we're going to go to heaven one day, and God's going to annihilate this planet. No, our source of courage is that heaven has rushed forward into the life of Jesus, and through his resurrection, new creation has flooded our planet. Man. So we can say yes to God and what he wants to do in this world. There are powers that want to, they, man, they, they, they want to remove any talk of resurrection. Why, why is it? And I remember growing up and being frustrated, not with my dad, because my dad and I would have these conversations, but with other preachers, right? Growing up and hearing preachers, and they never mentioned resurrection. Why is it? I'm not going to indict those preachers for not preaching resurrection, but if I'm a power and I want to carve up this world, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to make Christians forget about the doctrine of resurrection. I want them to lose sight. Remember, if, if you don't see or have a clear-eyed vi vision of the future, you're not going to be able to think straight about anything else. And so if I could get your mind off of the future, new heavens, new earth, the place where there will be no more sorrow, the place where every eye will be wiped of every tear, a place of healing and rest and transformation and renewal, if I can get your mind off that and get you to focus on just the immediate and just the now, I can suck the courage out of you. I can get you, man, you know what I would do if I was a Satan? You know what I would do? I would get you to obsess over your present circumstances. I want you to obsess over your kids. I want you to obsess over what's not going right. I want you to obsess over what's wrong with you. I want you to obsess over what's wrong with this world. I want you to think about the now, 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 immediate, immediate, immediate. That's what I would want you to obsess about. Because once you get your mind on the future, and when you grasp that God will make all things new. He's not going to scrap your body or this planet. Man, that is when the devils and the powers of hell itself begin to shake. That is when a generation of Christians rise up and stand up against injustice, against sin, against corruption and dehumanized behavior. When Christians begin to speak the truth in love, you know what? I know that they're beginning to grasp 
God's future world. It was Christians who understood that Jesus was risen, who changed the world. Christians who believe in like a pie in the sky, this is private spirituality, let's get off this planet, don't change the world. Christians who know that their future is connected to bodily resurrection make a big difference in how they live. Courage, courage, courage is inextricably connected to knowing that Jesus won the victory over death itself. Paul makes this very clear. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the whole chapter is about resurrection, bodily resurrection. He says, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, our preaching's in vain. If there's no resurrection, our faith is futile. If, our, if there's no resurrection, if there's no new heavens, new earth, we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, we have no power over our sin. If there's no resurrection, we all perish and we should all be pitied. He then continues and he kind of rhetorically plays with the church in Corinth and he asks in verse 30, if there is no resurrection, why am I in danger every day? Paul's like, it doesn't even make sense. Why am I shipwrecked? Why am I stoned? Not marijuana, right? Why have I been stoned? Why, do, why, do I, why is there danger in the city, the rivers, right? Danger in the urban places, danger in the farms. It's danger everywhere I go. Why do I die daily if there's no resurrection? He continues. He goes, why would I, why, what, what would I gain if I fought the beast at Ephesus? He then rhetorically continues by saying, if there is no resurrection, he's, he's using an Epicurean saying, if there is no resurrection, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. But then at the end, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus won the victory through his bodily resurrection. And because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that you and I have the power over sin. You and I have the power to remain immovable, invincible, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the king, knowing that in the king your labor is not in vain. What you do every single day matters. How you raise your kids, how you serve your neighbors, how you spend time in prayer and no one ever sees you pray. Come on. All the times that you study scripture, all the times that you serve and love and pick up your cross and give your life away, it matters because this world matters and this world matters because death has been defeated and death has been defeated because Jesus came back from the dead. So if we've grasped this as I close, if we know deeply that Jesus has been risen from the dead, then we can live, verses 27 through 30. We can live a life worthy of the gospel. We can stand firm in one spirit. We can stand firm in one mind, striving together. We can live courageous lives. We don't have to be intimidated by the powers. We will have the courage to engage in God's mission. But unity cannot happen if we have not firmly grasped the Christian future, the Christian hope. C.S. Lewis said this as I close, and I want to pray for you. He says, a Christian society, what C.S. Lewis is talking about, Christians who are now one, they're striving together in unity. A Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us want it. Do you want unity? He goes, most of us have to want 
unity. Most of us have to want courage in order to experience courage. But then he says, and we are not going to want it, this Christian society, courage and unity, until we become fully Christian. You gotta want unity. You gotta want to be a loving community. You gotta want to be courageous, but you're not going to want it until you become fully Christian. What, what does it mean to be fully Christian? Paul just makes it very clear in verse 21. To live is what? To live is Christ. To die is gain. When, when you begin with the first part on this side of new heavens and new earth, and you know that to live is not for respect, to live is not to have a good marriage. You're not living for a good marriage, and having a good marriage is great, but ultimately, that's not what you're living for. Can I get an amen? You're not ultimately living for your kids. You're not living for, man, power or fame or money or even good things. When you understand that your life is lived for Christ and Jesus is number one and he is your king and he is your Lord. Come on, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords over your life. And when you know that, when you're living for Christ, you're not just living for your spouse. You're not just living for your, your neighbors, right? You're not just living for your family or your friends. You're living for Christ. When it's all about Jesus, and then when you understand the hope that you have in Christ, that's when a church becomes unified, and that's when a church comes together in a beautiful way, and that's when a church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live courageously, to speak the truth in love, to not fall back into fear or complacency. This is how fear is broken off our life, is when we make a decision, no matter what, every single day, Jesus is going to be number one in my life. Number one. Number one. I'm not living for barbecue. I'm not living for the co-op. I'm not living for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not living for stuff. I'm not living for that home. I'm not living for that big screen TV. I'm not living just for my family and family is good and marriage is good, but I'm not living for that first. Ultimately, I'm living for Christ. And when you make that decision and when you firmly grasp the Christian hope, that is where you experience courage. Amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.